0: hadn't an, announced that. However, uh, after looking at that, uh, I decided that since next week will be Easter, and we'll be doing something special for Easter, that I didn't want to start 2 Corinthians and then have a pause and then get going again. So, uh, since I had many questions left over last time from Revelation, I decided to do a second week of questions on uh, all that you ever wanted to know on Revelation. Uh, and so then we'll have Easter, special Easter message next week, and then we'll hit the ground running in 2 Corinthians following Easter. Um, I had many questions. Not all of them pertain to Revelation. Uh, but I just want to jump in today and just try to answer some of them that I did have. Uh, one question that I, that I received on Revelation was to give some Scripture to give evidence to the fact that the Antichrist would reign over the revived Roman Empire. And uh, I've said that several times, that the, the, the Roman Empire would be revived, and uh, there was a question about giving some scriptural evidence for that. Actually, the evidence uh, is not so, so much in the book of Revelation as it is in the book of Daniel. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream And Daniel interprets that dream, and the dream is of an image. And the image has a head of gold, it has a chest and arms of silver, it has a belly and thighs of bronze, it has legs of iron, and it has feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. And Nebuchadnezzar sees this image of a man, and then as he watches, there's a stone cut out without hands that hits the image in the feet, and crushes the image, and then that stone becomes a huge mountain. And then Daniel interprets that dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 38, at the end he says, you are the head of gold, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. And so the, the golden head was the, the kingdom of Babylon. And then verse 39, and after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, And the kingdom that followed Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire, represented in the image by the two arms because there are two aspects to it, the uh, chest and arms of silver. And then verse 39, at the end he said, Then a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth, and that would represent Greece, which was the next major kingdom to rule over the earth. And then verse 40, Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as much as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And there's a fourth kingdom, and that fourth kingdom, if you know your history, is the Roman Empire. What's interesting to me is he only mentions four kingdoms here, even though there is uh, in the... In the uh, In the image, there's a fifth aspect, and that is the feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. And what we find there is that out of that fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, is going to come ten toes, which represents the ten kings of a confederacy of that Roman empire. It will be revived, and it is it that will be struck by the stone, which represents Christ, the rock, who will crush it, and set up the mountain, which will be his kingdom. Now, that's interpreted in Daniel chapter 2, but I don't want to go into all those details. What I want you to show you is Daniel chapter 7. Go to Daniel chapter 7, because in Daniel chapter 7, we didn't ever touch on this in our study, but in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. And if you notice in verse 2, it says, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea... And four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. So Daniel sees in his vision the sea, and out of the sea come four beasts. You say, well, what are these four beasts? Look at verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. There's the interpretation of it. Four beasts come up out of the sea. Those four beasts represent four Gentile world kingdoms before the kingdom of Christ comes. There will be four major kingdoms from the time of Daniel until the time that Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom. That's what he's telling us. Now, notice the beast. Go back to to chapter 7, verse 4. He says, The first one was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. The first beast was like a lion, the king of the animals. It was also like an eagle, the king of the birds. It represents Babylon. And he says, interestingly enough, about this kingdom, he says its wings were plucked and it stood up on two feet like a man. And if you'll read Daniel chapter 4, I believe what he's alluding to there is the experience that Nebuchadnezzar had, the great king who, who was lifted up with pride and then God humbled him and made him realize that God is the God of heaven. And so the experience of Babylon. Second kingdom, notice verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth. The bear, now, let me just show you this. This, is, this, is, this will help you a little bit. See that okay? There's a comparison between Nebuchadnezzar's vision and Daniel's vision. And this bear represents, in parallel, the kingdom of the Medo Persian Empire. The bear was raised up on one side, reminding us that the Persian side was stronger than the Median side of that kingdom. And it had three ribs in its mouth, representing probably the three governments that it had overthrown to come to power. And that was Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia that it overthrew. And then there was a third beast in verse 6. It says, And after this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. The third beast was like a leopard. And a leopard in Scripture represents the idea of swiftness, of speed. Habakkuk 1.8 says, Their horses are swifter than leopards. And so this is swiftness, speed, and and to enhance that idea, it has four wings on its back, and it represents Greece. And if you're familiar with history, you know that Alexander the Great had an army of about 35,000 men, and he came out of Macedonia, and he just swept across the known world. With great speed, he took the known world and and the civilized world uh, and set up his kingdom. And then the four heads represent probably the four generals who took over from Alexander the Great when he died at such a young age. He died at 32. And their four generals split up his kingdom. And those four heads are thought to represent those four generals. Um, and then there's a fourth kingdom, a fourth beast, and that's verse 7. It says, After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, And it was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great threats. Okay, you with me on this? This beast comes. Then Daniel sees ten horns. Out of those ten horns comes a little horn that plucks out three of the other horns and replaces them, and this horn has a mouth speaking arrogant things and eyes to see. You say, well, what's all that about? Well, that's what Daniel wanted to know. Look at verse 19. Daniel says, Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, which devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet... And I wanted to know the meaning of the ten horns which were on its head and of the little horn that came up before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than all its associates. Daniel says, I wanted to know about this fourth kingdom and these ten horns and this other horn. I wanted to know what that was. Notice verse 23. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms, it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And historically, we know that the fourth major kingdom that came upon the earth was the Roman Empire. But then notice verse 24. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. What are the ten horns? Out of the kingdom of Rome, the Roman Empire, ten kings will arise And after them, verse 24, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Ten kings will arise out of the Roman Empire. This little horn will arise subduing three of those kings. And verse 25 says, and he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. That same expression is used in the book of Revelation. And so you have here the Roman Empire, the fourth beast. Out of that Roman Empire will come ten kings. Out of those ten kings will arise one who will rise up and speak blasphemous things against God for three and a half years. And that's the Antichrist we read about in the book of Revelation. Now, take your Bible and look at Revelation chapter 13 with that background. Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. And he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast... Coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. There it is. John sees this beast coming up out of the sea. The sea represents the Gentile nations in Scripture. Out of the sea comes this beast, and it has the ten horns on its head. And he says it's like a leopard, like Greece. It's like a bear. It's like the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's like a lion. It's like Babylon. It carries many of the characteristics of the previous empires with it. But it's this 10-kingdom confederacy. Look at Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12. Here's an interpretation. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. There it is. The ten horns are ten kings. They have not yet received their kingdom. So the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire, but the ten horns don't come up until the end time and the tribulation. They, don't, they haven't received their kingdom yet. They're going to come out of that Roman Empire. Ten kings will arise, and out of those ten kings will come the Antichrist. It's over the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire. Just to give you one more verse, go back to Daniel chapter 9. We read this passage last week. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. <clears throat> Speaking about Daniel's 70 weeks here, it says in verse 26, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, Daniel lays out the 70 weeks that exist in the future of Israel. And he says after the 69 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, leaving one week left. We saw last week that that one week, that one seven year period, is still to come, the tribulation. But he says, after Messiah is cut off, then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. Now mark that. Who destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD? Well, Titus came in with the Romans and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And he says, the people of the prince to come. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem. It is from Rome, that the Antichrist is going to come. And so we see more uh, evidence for that here in in Daniel chapter 9. Okay, enough on that. Now, I've got another question about uh, whether the resurrection of the beast in Revelation is really a a reference to the Roman Empire. There are many Bible teachers... Turn to Revelation chapter 13. There are many Bible teachers who take the position... That in Revelation chapter 13, when it talks about uh, the wound and the healing and all, that it's talking about the Roman Empire. And uh, they take that to be the revival of the Roman Empire. Well, look, look at Revelation chapter 13. Let me just give you some insight on this. Revelation chapter 13, verse 3. Uh, Daniel see, or John sees this beast come out of, out of the sea, and in verse 3 it says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. Now, there are those who say that that's talking about the Roman Empire, that it was slain, gone, and now it's revived in the time of the tribulation. The problem I have with that is that when you come to Revelation chapter 17, you will find that uh, it says that the heads represent, seven heads represent seven kings. And so the heads represent the king. It doesn't say here that the beast was slain. One of its heads was slain. And it's talking about the beast there. Uh, in fact, uh, it's confusing here in Revelation chapter 13 because in Daniel it talks about the beast and it refers to it as, as kingdoms as well as kings. And it's kind of the same idea here that in Revelation chapter 13 it talks about the beast and uh, the beast it refers to the entire kingdom Of the antichrist but it also refers to the antichrist himself so you have to be a little careful with how you interpret some of this but i'm certain that antichrist is or the beast is an individual because in revelation chapter 19 and verse 20 it says he was thrown alive into the lake of fire so it's not just talking about his kingdom it's talking about an individual and it says here that he had uh a fatal wound and it was healed. If you slide down in verse thir- or chapter 13 to verse 12, speaking of this false prophet, it says he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. Verse 14. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which was, it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And so he's obviously talking about here an individual who had a fatal wound. In fact, he gets more particular and says it was a fatal wound caused by a sword, and he's come to life. Now, there's some, some uh, Bible teachers I've heard that said that this guy's going to have a, a head wound and then he's going you know, to get somehow injured in his head, and then he's going to get healed. Well, that's not what it teaches here, because when it talks about the head, it's talking about the king. Revelation chapter 17. It's not his personal head. It's the head of the beast. And so the, the idea is of this, this individual, the Antichrist. And in fact, if you look at verse 3 of chapter 13, again it says, And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And one of the reasons that this world is going to bow down and worship this Antichrist is because of this miraculous simulated resurrection on the part of of this Antichrist under the power of Satan. In fact, look at Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8. There's an interesting statement made here, and and we didn't really go into it much when we covered this, but in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. That's an interesting statement. It says he he was and he is not and he is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. Now if you take that of the kingdom of Rome then you've got to say that the Roman Empire comes up out of the abyss. Um, I think it's more palatable to take this of the Antichrist, but really take it of Satan, who is the one who embodies this Antichrist. He comes up out of the abyss, and at the midpoint of the tribulation, there's good evidence that actually the Satan comes and embodies this Antichrist. He has a uh, a resurrection that's simulated. He has a wound as if he's died, and at that point, he is actually uh, embodied by Satan. In the last half of the tribulation, he is. Uh, satan in the flesh if you like Um, let me support that with one other passage Uh, isaiah chapter 13 isaiah chapter 14 isaiah chapter 14 is a classic old testament passage and it's a passage that uh Bible students use in reference to Satan. There's no question it's talking about Satan. Uh, Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have, you have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will ri- raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Now, every Bible teacher that I've ever read takes this to be Satan, and it is. But what's interesting is, if you will go back in chapter 14 to verse 4, Isaiah is told that he should take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. That's interesting. He starts out talking to the king of Babylon and then suddenly shifts gears and tar- starts talking about Satan. And in Revelation, we found that the king of Babylon is the Antichrist. His kingdom is called Babylon in Revelation chapter 18. And in, in fact, in, in Isaiah chapter 13, he describes there how that Babylon is going to be destroyed in the day of the Lord. And so... In, when we look down toward the future end time and the tribulation, we're going to find that the Antichrist is going to reign over the kingdom of Babylon and he is going to be, in fact, uh, the reflection of this king of Babylon spoken of in Isaiah chapter 14 because he will be uh, indwelt by Satan himself. Now, somebody else asked me a question about why some people say that Antichrist will be Jewish. Uh, if you notice, this morning, I took all the easy questions last week and I have the tough ones today. So I was, I was going to just kind of breeze by some of these. Somebody asked me, you know, a lot of people say that the Antichrist will be Jewish. And I think some of that comes from the fact that he is the Antichrist and say, well, he must be Jewish because he's the anti-Messiah. Uh, let me give you the one verse that really helps substantiate that position. Daniel chapter 11 and verse 36. This is speaking about the Antichrist who is to come in the tribulation period. It says, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done, and he will show no regard for... And the King James there says, the God of his fathers. Now that's where it comes from. Uh, He will show no regard for the God of his fathers. The The Hebrew word there is Elohim. It can be translated God or it can be translated gods. New American Standard has gods. So... This is where the idea comes that he'll be Jewish. He shows no regard for the, the God of his fathers, but the, the word is not convincing there. Uh, it can be he shows no regard for the gods of his fathers. If you go on the verse, he shows no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, but he will magnify himself above them all. Now, depending on how you want to interpret that verse, uh, you can decide whether... The Antichrist will be Jewish or not. Uh, I would suggest that you not be too dogmatic on that. Uh, in fact, in in Revelation chapter 13, it says that the the beast will come up out of the sea. And consistently in Scripture, the sea is a symbol of the Gentile nations. And uh, in in fact, in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 15, it says that the waters in Revela- Revelation are a symbol of the, the nations and tribes and peoples of the world. Uh, and so I wouldn't be too dogmatic on the fact that he'll be Jewish. So uh, when, you're, when you're checking somebody out, you better uh, hold on to that qualification lightly. Um, another question I got, and I got it several times, was will someone who has heard the gospel and rejected it have a second chance in the tribulation? Uh, for somebody who's heard the gospel and rejected the gospel, when the rapture takes place and the tribulation comes in, is that person going to have a second chance at that point in time? Well, technically they will because they'll be here. They'll have that opportunity technically. But let me give you some reasons why I don't think that they will respond to the gospel. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a chapter that talks about the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord is going to be that period of time taking in the activities of the tribulation and also the, the millennial kingdom. And in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is talking about the timing of, of this day of the Lord. And in verse 3, he says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come... Unless the apostasy comes first. The word apostasy means the falling away comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's the Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Don't let anybody tell you the day of the Lord has come because it's not going to come until the Antichrist comes and he is the one who will set himself up in the temple in Jerusalem as being God. And then verse 5, Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, the mystery, or the, uh, mystery of lawlessness is already at work in this world. And, of course, that's the activities of Satan. He will eventually, during the tribulation, embody that in a man, the Antichrist, and rule over the world. But he says there's something that now restrains him, and he doesn't define what that is. I believe he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think there's only one who can restrain Satan, and that's the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying the Holy Spirit is in the world now, and he's restraining that lawlessness in this world. And he will restrain it until he is taken out of the way. When is he taken out of the way? Well, he, the Holy Spirit embodies believers. He embodies the church. And when the church is taken out of the way in the rapture described in First Thessalonians chapter 4, then this man of lawlessness is going to be re- re- revealed because the restraint will no longer be here. And you say, well, is somebody going to get saved during that time who heard the gospel and rejected before? Well, I think there's three fra- factors in this passage that suggest that they won't. Number one is Satan's deception. Notice verse 8. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness. For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. There's a major factor you've got to consider, and that is Satan's deception. Satan is going to be here, and he's going to be working in deception. He's going to be embodying this Antichrist with power and signs and false wonders. And if you notice verse 10, the primary target of his deception is going to be those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. I think he's talking about people who rejected the gospel prior to the rapture. There's a second factor, and that is God's delusion. Notice verse 11. And for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false. God's going to send a deluding influence on certain men, and they're going to believe what is false. What is false? Verse 4 tells us that the Antichrist is God. He's going to set himself up in the temple, that a man is God. That's the false message that's going to be given in the tribulation. And it says God is actually going to send a deluding influence on certain people to believe that. Which people? Notice verse 12. In order that they all, that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth. Who's he talking about? Those who rejected the gospel. And so there's two major factors you've got to consider here. Satan's deception and God's delusion. God's actually going to take the blinders off of Israel during the tribulation, and he's going to put them on those who have willingly and knowingly rejected the gospel during this time. And then there's a third factor here, and that is man's desire. Satan's deception, God's delusion, and man's desire. Notice the end of verse 12. It says they did not believe. Why? Because they took pleasure in wickedness. You know, I've said it many times, but unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. And man who rejects the gospel now is going to see the rapture and see all these signs. He's not going to suddenly say, Oh, I get it. I understand. Now I'll respond. That's not the way man operates. Because faith is not an intellectual problem. It's not just a matter of calculating and saying, yes, that's true. It's a moral problem. And here it says man doesn't believe because he loves his sin. Jesus said the same thing. He said, men, love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They love the darkness. They love their sin, and they're not going to give that up. Read Revelation uh, chapter 9 at the end. It says all these judgments come down, and it says that men refuse to repent of all of their sins. They saw all the judgments of God, and yet they refused to repent because it's a moral problem that they have. And so I won't say this totally dogmatically, but I am of the opinion that a person who understands and rejects the gospel today will not respond during the tribulation to the gospel then because of Satan's deception, because of the delusion that God is actually going to send, and because of the very nature of man's desire, he loves his wickedness. Whatever it is that keeps a person from coming to Christ now is just going to be intensified during the tribulation period. Whatever it is that holds you back. And the cost in the tribulation period is going to be that you will have to lay down your life for what you believe. And I just don't see that happening in an individual who won't make a commitment today. Whatever it is that's holding a person back today is just going to be multiplied during that time. Okay, we're running out of time again. Let me see here. Uh, We don't have time for that. Uh, Look at Luke chapter 16. Somebody asked me where Abraham's bosom is. Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31. We don't have time to read it. But it's the it's the account that Jesus gives about Lazarus and the rich man. They both died. Important thing about this account is it's not called a parable. A lot of people say this is a parable about Lazarus and the rich man. It doesn't say it's a parable here. Jesus just says in verse 19, now there was a certain rich man. I'm assuming this is an actual story, and I take it that way. He just says this happened. And what Jesus is talking about is is really what happened prior to the cross. This, this, This happened, it may have happened way back in the Old Testament that he's looking back to. He says they both died, and the rich man went to Hades. And Hades is described here. It's described as a place of torment in verse 23, and in verse 24 it's described as a place of flames. So the idea that Hades was a holding tank for believers and unbelievers is totally false. Hades is a place of torment. People went there in the Old Testament. They went there before the cross. They go there now, those who are unbelievers. The Lazarus goes to... But it says in verse 22, it says he was taken by the angels to Abraham's bosom. You say, well, where is Abraham's bosom? Well, it's not a holding tank either. Uh, Abraham's bosom, it's an interesting expression. Uh, for a Jew to be where Abraham was, to be, was to be in right standing with God. If you told the Jew you're going to go where Abraham is, he'd say, that's good. Because Abraham was the father of the Jews. Abraham, in fact, is called in Romans chapter 4 the father of all who believe. And so this Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham. You say, well, what's the bosom of Abraham? Well, the bosom is the place of intimate favor. Remember John, it says he sat at the table and leaned his head on Jesus' breast, on his bosom. That was a place of intimacy. In John 1, 18, it says of Christ, that he is, was the one who is in the bosom of the Father, in that special place of affection. And so he says, you're going to go where Abraham is to that special place of affection where he is in relation to Abraham. That's where Lazarus went. Now, I take that to be synonymous with paradise, where the, where the thief on the cross went the moment he died. Uh, I take it to be the place where we go. Paradise is the, is the place where Christ is and where God is. Um, there is no holding tank. There's no limbo out there. In fact, somebody asked me another question about whether there's a purgatory, uh, a place where you pay for your sin, sort of a rehab center that you go to and sort of you know, pay off the extras and then you... Uh, you know, that, that concept really comes out of this other concept, this idea, that there's some kind of holding tanks and all. they get into all this stuff and then somebody said, hey, you know, why don't we just... You know, and they came up with the idea of a purgatory. But if you really look at it, uh, that concept has no grounds in Scripture, and that concept is actually an affront to God. Because what that says is that salvation is deficient, that Jesus didn't pay for all our sins. We've got to, you know, pick up the tab on a few of them. It's really a mockery of, of, of God's salvation plan and of the sacrifice of Christ, and then it's also an affront to God's justice because it says that sin is cheap. You know, that I, can, I can pay for sin. Well, there's no way. The, the, the smallest sin ever committed in the universe receives the sentence of eternal judgment. That's how much it costs. There's no way that any of us could pay for one small sin. And so the idea that there's some place where we sort of work out and pay for some of our sin is, is an affront to God. It's an attack on his justice, and it's an attack on his grace. It has no basis in Scripture. Someone also asked me, since we're off on interesting questions, uh, if it helps to pray to dead saints. I hope they weren't serious when they asked me that, uh, or sincere about that. I, I, uh, I tell you, I was watching the NCAA game the other day, and I, I, uh, I saw they kept flashing this girl in the stands, and she was, she was going like this. And, and uh, they kept showing her. They, they show the play, and then they glance over at this girl in the stands, and here she is. Oh, she had it like this. And uh, she never looked up. I, she was right behind the, the bench, and I thought she paid for a good ticket. You know? And, and she's, she's looking down at the floor, and she's got everything on her body crossed. And I thought, you know, I wonder if she thinks she's really helping the team. You know, I mean, it's sort of like that, that superstition that if I do this and if I don't look, maybe we'll win the game. Uh, that's the way I view something like this. Like people say, well, you know, I'll, I'll just try a little of everything. You know, I'll, I'll pray to for Aunt, Aunt uh, Bernice or somebody, and, or I'll pray to this saint, or I'll pray to that angel. or I try. You know, it, when you really analyze that stuff, it really goes back to the, the Gnostic cults in the time of the New Testament when their belief was that you, you just had all these little avenues to God and you sort of had to work up this angel and move over to this saint and then you could get up here to this level and then you'd work your way up. It comes from all that cultish belief. It actually goes back from there to Babylonian religion, which is going to be the religion in the tribulation period. And it's, 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 a, it's a totally false approach. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God... And one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. That doesn't leave room for anybody else. There's one mediator. He goes from man to God, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And that's the verse we need to focus because that's the truth of God. (sighs) Okay. I'll tell you what, I'll just close with one more question. I have some pretty good ones here. Um, Somebody asked me, will babies go to heaven? Uh, Yes, I think they will. I hope they'll be adults when they get there. But uh, I don't want crying... Well, the, the scripture says there'll be no crying there, so that won't be a problem. <clears throat> Let me give you one verse on that, just so I'm not just making light of that, because that's a serious issue for somebody who's experienced the death of a baby. Second uh, Samuel 12:23 is the only verse I can find in scripture on the subject. Second Samuel 12:23 and there david experiences the death of his little baby and he's crying for 7 days while the child is sick and then at the end of that experience when david finds out his child has died it says he gets up and wipes his tears away and he goes ahead and eats and goes about his daily life and he makes this statement in 2nd Samuel 12:23 he says he can no longer come to me but i will go to him interesting statement while the, while the baby was still sick and there was a possibility that he might be healed, David was fasting and praying and crying for that child. When the child was gone, he makes that statement, he won't be able to come to me now, but I will go to him, which is an indication that that, that baby is where David was going, which I believe is the presence of the Lord. Um, then one other question. Somebody asked me, how soon is the rapture? Please speculate. Uh, <laughs> And you know I won't fall for that uh, but I think it's like Jesus said when you know when you see uh, this time of year when you see the 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 leaves starting to come out and everything's starting to bud just a little bit you know that spring is coming and he said when you see these signs starting to unfold you know that the end is near and I think we can look at many of the things we've seen in the book of Revelation and realize that the time is near that many of the things that are that are predicted in the book of Revelation are unfolding in our day, and we can see that they're very close to coming to reality, and that ought to spark us to realize that the end is near. Um, My approach is this. I say you should live as if it will occur today and plan as if it won't. Live, Live as if Jesus is coming back today and plan as if he isn't. I mean, don't quit planning. Don't quit planning five years down the road because you're saying, well, Jesus is coming back. Why plan? Don't approach life that way. Live, make your choices. Make your spontaneous choices on the basis that Jesus may come back today. And make your plans on the basis that he won't because we need to plan for the future. Uh, okay? I had a friend in, in Bible school and, and I don't know how we got into it. His name was Dennis Stoutenberg and he used to say to me, uh, I don't know how this got started, but we used to, uh, walk by each other, and he'd always look at me and say, it could be today. And uh, it kind of became a habit that whenever we walked by each other, we would say that to each other. If, if the other one wasn't looking, we'd say, it could be today. And it was a great, great reminder that the Lord may be coming back today, and it, it affects the way you live your life when you live with the perspective that Jesus may come back today. It affects your life, and it affects the choices that you make. And the book of Revelation certainly indicates to us that the time is not far away. And we need to be ready for the return of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you just for this opportunity to spend some time in your word, looking up uh, some of the answers to questions that we have. And Father, we just pray that we might be challenged once again by your word to realize that all that you say is true. And Lord, I just pray that we might respond in obedience to what we know. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.